0: Thank you for tuning in to Hill Country Fellowship's audio podcast. We hope you're encouraged and inspired as you listen today. For more information, visit us online at hcfburnit.org. So today uh, we are continuing continuing in our series, Stay the Course in 1 Timothy. You can go ahead and turn there to chapter 2. Um, and uh, we're, we've made it to an awesome passage that also happens to be uh, one of the most controversial and widely debated passages in the entire Bible, I would say. So thank you, Scott, for allowing me to to preach on that this morning. Um, I appreciate the opportunity. Um, Before we get started reading, uh, I want everyone to be aware that you probably will be offended by something today. Um, And I just want to make sure we offend everybody today right here at the beginning. So I'm going to give you all some of my hot takes. A, A hot take is like a uh, and your opinion on something that's widely debated, usually a, a lighthearted topic. Um, so trying to get a big response from people. And so uh, like one of my, my students, James, he's always given me this hot take that water is wet. Uh, don't think about that one for, for too long, but uh, here we go. Here's some of my hot takes on some things today. Uh, I'll start off strong. in and out is better than Whataburger. Yes, okay, we'll go there. Um, California has given us two good things. That's Josh and Kayla, and In-N-Out. Okay, it's their fries. The fries is what does it. Um, okay, a baby is not cute until it's at least three months old. I'll just I'll just say that, it, except for mine, right? Um, here's a here's a picture of uh, Brady when he was about one month old, right? Okay, so maybe maybe not him. He was, he's was definitely cute though. Um, Blue Bell ice cream is great, but. H-E-B Creamy Creations, I would say, is better. Um, it's is hard to beat that. Uh, this is probably, this should be the most agreeable statement. Texas is the best country in the world, right? There we go, okay, okay. Um, I don't know if I offended anybody there, but uh, a, I would say a, a bad day on the ski slopes is still better than a good day at the beach. Okay, offended a, f- offended a few people there, okay. Um, Tipping at restaurants should not be expected, right? Amen. It, if it, if it, it, it shouldn't be, if, if it's, a, it's a tip if it's not expected, right? Anyway, um, okay, last one, this should, this should cover like probably everybody in here. Y'all need to quit lying to yourselves, coffee is disgusting and you know it, right? Okay, I, a few people agree, so I know I offended just about everybody. Is anybody not offended this morning? Okay, all right, I, I hope I covered everybody. Because again, what, what we're about to read, uh, it does get um, debatable and, and divisive sometimes. So I just want to be sure we can all say we left this morning being offended by something, okay? Um, but in all seriousness, I, I actually want to start this morning by reading to you Jesus' prayer for us in John chapter 17. Um, this part isn't divisive. This is actually the opposite of that. Jesus talks about unity. He prays for us, actually, the, the ones who would believe after Uh, he was gone. He prays this for us in John chapter 17, verse 20 and 21. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So Jesus is praying here for, for unity in our church. The, the key to our witness in the world is unity in the church. Here at, at HCF, we, we say that in the essentials, we have unity. In the non-essentials, we have liberty. And as we talk about any of those things, we have charity and, and grace for each other. Because Christians sometimes have a pretty big reputation for, for bickering over the little things. But Jesus here, he's praying that we be known for our unity. We have to be committed to unity, or we're never going to accomplish the mission that he has for us. So that means when we get to disputable verses like, like the passage today, we have to stay humble. We have to be willing to listen to others and, and learn from each other. And above all, we stay committed to each other as followers of Jesus. That's good. Like we, we might land in some different places, and that's okay. Remember Scott's message last week, we can be right and sometimes still get it wrong, like, if you, if you let a non-essential break your fellowship with another believer, you're wrong. Absolutely. At the end of the day, we still agree to submit to Jesus as our Lord. Yes. And, and we can shake hands and fellowship and even worship with each other despite our differences because we still have that ultimate common ground of Jesus. And, and I'm glad we don't turn away from passages like this. We don't try to sugarcoat the Bible to fit what the world wants it to say. We don't act like certain verses just aren't there. We dive in and we explore all of God's word together. We wrestle with it and and we submit and change ourselves as needed. Um, So I'm excited to dive into this today. Okay, are we ready? First Timothy, chapter two, we're uh, up to verse eight now. We're going to read through chapter three. It's a big section. We're going to read all of it and then we'll start walking through piece by piece. So two, verse eight. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Chapter 3. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Okay, let's stop right there. I, this is a lot, I know, right? But. A lot of us probably didn't hear anything after she will be saved through childbearing, right? Um, But let's let's tune in here. I don't want us to miss this because this is this is the key right here at the end of chapter three, verse fourteen. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So, Paul is writing to Timothy so that we may know how to behave in the household of God. Everything we just read, no matter how debatable or confusing or controversial, it serves that purpose. So that we may know how to behave in the household of God, the church the pillar of the truth of Jesus. So the the key for this entire passage is is what we do as the family of God, it reflects his truth to the world, and so it matters. What we do as the family of God reflects his truth to the world, so it matters. We're uh, here in a little bit going to sing a new song called The House of the Lord by Phil Wickham. It's a super fun, exciting song about the joy of the Lord that we have here in his house as we worship if this is the house of the Lord, we're the people, we make up the household of the Lord. And this passage is all about how the household of the Lord, God's people, how we should behave. I'm uh, I'm in the process of learning how to be a parent, and one thing that Amy and I have have been doing lately is teaching our boys, encouraging them what it means to be a Barnard boy. We're always telling them, like, Barnard boys, always tell the truth. Barnard boys, always make good choices. Barnard boys, always be a good friend. Uh, Barner boys always go potty in the potty and not in their pants. Um, We we say, no, Caleb, you can't. Uh, Barner boys don't scream at someone when they tell you good morning, even if you're still sleepy. Or Johnny, um, Barner boys are going to eat more than just ketchup for dinner. Uh, Like fill in the blank. There's all these things, right? The Barner boys are going to know what it means um, to grow up and represent our family to the world. And that's, that's exactly what Paul is telling Timothy to teach the Ephesians here, that we're God's household. And what we do as the family of God reflects his truth to the world. So it matters. Yeah. And th- this is all through Paul's letter to Timothy. Like chapter one, we saw the, the false teachings. Uh, they distract us from that purpose. And then last week at the beginning of chapter two, is, we, we pray for our leaders and our nation so that we can live in peace in order to share Jesus with the world. So as we go through these specifics today, Paul reminds us that at the end of the day, it's all about Jesus. It's all for the sake of championing Jesus, lifting up Jesus, making sure our behavior points to Jesus, making sure our worship reflects Jesus, and even our church structure points to Jesus, and it sets ourselves up to share Jesus with the world the best way possible. Okay, so let's dive in. Um, Verse 8. It's the the first instructions are to the men. I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Pretty short compared to what he tells the women next, right? Um, I'll say that these first two sentences really are are general Christian virtues that apply to men and women both. It's just that these specifics might be a a bigger struggle for men in general or women in general, and they at least were specific issues that this church uh, was facing. And so the, the men of Ephesus apparently had a problem with their worship and prayer. They were either um, sitting back and not engaging in worship and prayer, uh, or they, they were hiding their sins and their conflicts with each other when they came to pray and worship. And Jesus talked about the same thing in, in Matthew 5. Uh, he said, "So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go." First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. So when we come to worship, are we at peace with everyone around us? Men and women both. Are are you holding a grudge against someone? Is there someone with something against you? Go, make things right. Do everything in your power to live at peace with them. Humble yourself and and own what you need to own. Um, apologize for your contribution to it, like they they may shoot it straight back in your face, but our role is to obey God and trust him with the rest. Like we love God and love people, right? When we have unresolved conflict with people, especially believers, Jesus says it hinders our relationship with God because his spirit lives in them too. So so let's engage in worship and, and lift hands in prayer, but let them be holy hands. Let's be completely honest before the Lord. Confess our sins, not hold anything back. And let's seek to live at peace with all God's children. Our our worship and our prayers are hollow, if not. Okay, let's keep moving. Uh, Verse 9 and 10. He says, Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. There's a, a growing hatred for the word modesty these days. Um, there, there's been a lot of pushback uh, again, against the, the purity culture kind of mentality. Even in the past couple months, you might have heard Matthew West. Uh, he released this song called Modest is Hottest. Uh, it's a, kind of a, a funny little song to his daughters, encouraging them to pursue modesty. Uh, It was written in a satirical way, lighthearted, but uh, he got huge pushback for this song, uh, from non-believers, the world for sure, but even from some Christian circles. The the typical argument is that Christians have turned into Pharisees on the whole modesty and and purity thing, and it's produced fear and shame. And women over the years about their bodies and it places all the blame and responsibility for for lust and sin on the women with nothing to say to the men Um, and and some of that critique is true like it it's totally a man's fault whenever he looks at a woman in lust jesus said if you look at lustfully at a woman you commit adultery in your heart and if your right eye causes you to sin gouge out your eye So guys, no matter how the women around you are dressed, whatever setting you find yourselves in, um, it's ultimately your responsibility to guard your heart. We can't kid ourselves into thinking that if women just dress differently, then all of our heart problems and our lust would just go away. We would do well to be like Job. He makes a covenant with his eyes not to look lustfully on a woman. And like we've talked about in, in men's Bible study, get a partner. Get a swim buddy Um, who will hold you accountable. However, the pendulum has has swung too far in our culture today. There there was even a Christian pastor who responded to the Matthew West song. Um, He rewrote the lyrics and he said, if I catch you doing dances on the TikTok, wear what you want. Girl, just go off, hold your head up so your crown doesn't fall off. You're a queen if you forgot, so just wear what you want. My question for for that pastor and and that mindset is, do you really believe that? Do you really think that? Would you really want your daughter to just dance and wear whatever she wants for the world to see, and you would just cheer her on, support her no matter what? We can correct the, the negative consequences from some of the ways that purity and modesty might have been taught, but we shouldn't just throw it all away. Modesty is in the Bible. We can't ignore it. We can't just tell our daughters to dress however you want or you do you or wear whatever makes you feel good. There's a line that any decent parent would draw somewhere in how their their children would dress. And modesty is is defining where that line is, why it's there, and and who gets to draw that line. And so God tells us here, modesty, respectable, and self-control. Use those three filters when you're, when you're buying clothes, when you're getting dressed, especially coming to gather for worship, but really no matter where you are, whether it's the, the grocery store, going to work, going to a Randy Rogers concert, uh, going to the beach, modesty, respectable, and self-control. Be honest with yourself. Am, am I trying to draw attention to myself and my body with this? Am I going overboard on the amount of clothes I have or the amount I'm spending on my clothes? Am I representing Jesus in a respectable way with how I'm dressed? Am I doing whatever feels good to me or am I submitting this area of my life to Jesus and what he wants? Good. We're not coming to church to put on a show. We're not showing off our expensive clothes and jewelry. We're not showing off our beach bodies. Guys, we're not showing off how much how many hours we put in at the gym. Everything we do is to point to Jesus, not to ourselves. How we dress shouldn't draw attention to our bodies. And we aren't responsible for someone else's sin, but we are called to not put stumbling blocks in their way. And and I know that modesty is at least somewhat a culturally defined thing, right? Like, You can't point to a verse in the Bible that says how long your pants should be or how low a shirt could hang or whether a swimsuit could be two pieces or not. Um, One person's modest outfit might look really scandalous to another. That's where submitting to Christian leadership and Christian community comes in. But I will at least say that our culture keeps pushing the line of appropriateness and, and modesty in the less and less direction. And, and we as Christians can never be on, on the cutting edge of that line, pushing it further. Yes. If anything, we should, we should be fighting against that tendency of our culture. So, so single people and, and teenagers, if you're pursuing marriage, what are you trying to attract a potential spouse with? The, the world, it, it just oozes messages of physical attraction. You've got to look perfect. Work on all your externals. Guys and girls both. Right? Have the, the right body, show it off, wear the best clothes, have the perfect haircut, have the best looking car, post more and more suggestive things on social media just to get people to look at you. I promise the person you attract with those things is almost guaranteed to be the wrong kind of person that God wants for you. But what do we find here? Let your good works and godliness be what's attractive about you. Let the joy of the Lord be what radiates from you more than anything shiny that you're wearing. Amen. Prioritize your time with Jesus in the morning over spending time in the gym. And uh, parents, especially fathers, what are, what are you allowing your children to do? Do you know what your daughters are posting on social media? Do you know how they're dressing when they're not around you? Do you know what your sons are watching on their phones and the the influencers that they're looking at on social media. Satan is having a heyday with teenagers in those avenues. Are you training and preparing your kids for those things? It's not enough just to protect them from it. We have to actively prepare them for it because they're going to inevitably face it. It's so easy to, to just make rules and, and draw a line and enforce it and that's that. But modesty, it's about the heart. Are you strangling your kids with rules or are you shaping their hearts to love Jesus and represent him to the world? And men, what what kind of ways are you talking about women, including your wife? Are you reducing them to what they look like? The majority of the pressure for women to to dress that way is from men talking and thinking about them that way. A Christian man should never be a part of, of the locker room talk that goes on that's so degrading to women yep. again these things matter and what we do as the family of God it reflects his truth to the world so let's be attractive with good works and let's celebrate and talk about godliness not physical beauty or, or worldly possessions okay let, let's keep moving verse 11 through 15 Says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self control. She'll be saved through childbearing. Probably one of the most head scratching verses in the Bible. Uh, like, like what? Women are saved by having kids? No, we, we know how we're saved from our sins, right? Let's not forget the whole Bible just because one verse sounds a certain way. We're saved through faith in Jesus, right? That's absolutely clear. So we know that this can't mean that. There's quite a few interpretations trying to figure out what the meaning really is here. But here, here's what I see is the most plausible one. Um, you dive, dive deep into the meaning of the words saved and through. Saved and through, it's, it's the Greek words sozo and dia. They also occur in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15, where Paul is talking about the, the work we do for Jesus, what we've built for him, uh, whether we've been faithful to obey him or not, it'll all be revealed by fire in the end. And he says, if someone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So women being saved through childbirth, it's the same kind of being saved through fire here. Um, Not that childbirth and fire are the means, the the way to get saved, but those are the obstacle or the the danger they're being saved from or through. It's the sense of being brought safely through a danger. And the, the compound of those Greek words, dia sozo, it literally does mean that, to be brought safely through a danger. So no, women, you don't have to have babies to get to heaven. Um, it, it's saying that through Jesus, there's hope for salvation from the pains of childbirth or hope for salvation despite the pains of childbirth. Some translations will, will even put it that way. Um, the only hope we have for re- reversing the curse of the fall is through Jesus, And and this makes a lot more sense when you consider the the cultural context of the time. In Ephesus, there was this temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, a huge temple to the goddess of fertility and childbirth. There were tons of worshipers of Artemis in Ephesus at the time. Uh, Remember in, in Acts chapter 19, there were silversmiths that confronted Paul because Artemis was losing worshipers and they weren't selling as many silver idols of her. It turned into a mob and and basically a riot. Uh, It was a big deal. Well, Artemis was the goddess who was prayed to during childbirth. So what seems like a, a random thought coming out of nowhere to us, it would have been a huge bomb dropping on the people there in Ephesus. Everyone would have known exactly the point Paul was making here when he said that women would be saved through childbirth. He's saying it's through Jesus, not through Artemis. So now let's back up to verse 11 and 12. Paul says women should learn quietly with submissiveness. Some translations here might say they should learn silently, uh, but that's that's not a good translation. Um, We know that women weren't silent in the church gatherings because in 1 Corinthians 11, it's all about men and women praying and prophesying during worship. The same Greek word is used just up in verse 2 here from last week when it says we should pray for our leaders so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, the word peaceful there is the same word here. That's what Paul is saying. Silent wouldn't make any sense back there, and so it's not what's meant here. Teaching the word of God in worship should be defined by peace and submission. Apparently, it wasn't happening there in the church of Ephesus. And then Paul says he doesn't allow a woman to teach or have authority over a man. There is, there's so much here. Again, a, a highly debated verse, right, and the surrounding verses. Pro, possibly one of the most debated verses in the whole Bible. I don't have time to get into all the arguments and the nuances of how to interpret this, but basically there's two camps. One would say this is a principle, and one would say this is a practice. A principle or a practice. Overall, every command or instruction we receive in God's Word fits into those categories. It's either an overarching timeless principle that applies to us today or it it was a specific cultural practice that might look different today. For example, what we just read above, that women should dress modestly with self-control. That's the, the principle that's timeless no matter what context we're in. And then it says not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire. There's the practice. Culturally, those specific ways of dressing uh, might communicate something different in different contexts. So we join the Christian community and we seek the guidance of the Holy Spirit on whether those practices are the right application of the principle in our context. But we're always seeking to apply the principle of modesty and self-control that God has given us. And so now here, some would say that women teaching and not teaching or having authority over a man was a practice. It was a specific instruction that Paul gave to Timothy for the church in Ephesus, but it wasn't meant to apply to Christians in all churches everywhere for all time. And they make some really good points. Galatians 3.28, we are all one in Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, no male or female. There's tons of super important leaders throughout scripture who were females including the first evangelist to tell the apostles about Jesus' resurrection. Everyone to see the empty tomb first were women. Paul called some women his co-workers in Christ. And this passage could be explained with more information about the cultural context of Ephesus at the time, especially Artemis, and more and more. I can't get into all the points here, but, but there's a lot. And on the other hand, and this is where we land as a church at HCF, We would say that, no, this is a principle. Women should not have teaching authority over men in the church worship setting, primarily because look at what comes next. Paul says it's because of creation. It's a principle because it's rooted not in the cultural context of Ephesus. It's rooted in creation. Adam was first, and then Eve. Paul also, he talks about the fall, too. But even before the fall, God created us in that order. And he created us uniquely male and female. We're all equally valued by God, but created with different complementary roles to fill. We see this primarily in the marriage relationship and in the church. Male leadership in the family and the church is a principle in Scripture grounded in the very beginning, how God created us. But different roles doesn't mean different values or a hierarchy of importance. Like, think of the Trinity. Jesus is God. He's equally as much divine as God the Father, and yet, God the Father leads, and Jesus the Son submits to his leadership. Same thing going on here. Women are called to a place of joyful submission to the loving, sacrificial leadership of a man. Does this mean that every man in church is is leader over every woman? Not at all. We're, We're just talking about the overall teaching authority in the church, which is the elders, which you can see in chapter 3 and also in chapter 5, or 17. But I don't want to move on from here without addressing one more issue first. This passage and, and this principle of male leadership in the church, it, it has been um, abused in church history, even today. Which is why so many people want to move away from it being uh, a principle and explain this as a specific cultural practice instead. Even in a, a healthy biblical church like this, there could be remnants of of abusing this principle that we don't even recognize. So um, here's some things that this verse absolutely does not mean. It does not mean that women should be silent. It does not mean that women can't lead in worship. It doesn't mean that women can't pray or prophesy in worship. It doesn't mean women can't testify or share their stories of what God has done. It doesn't mean women have nothing to contribute. It doesn't mean women that a woman is being defiant or unsubmissive or she needs to learn her place if she shares legitimate concerns in a healthy way like any other man would. It doesn't mean women can't have the spiritual gift of teaching and be really good at it. It doesn't mean women can't have leadership positions in the workplace. It doesn't mean women can't have valid input and ideas and feedbacks that that elders should value and consider just as equally as any other man's ideas and feedback. It doesn't mean women are too emotional or don't have the skills to lead. Now, how this principle plays out in our practice, it might vary from church to church. But this verse at least means that the position of of lead pastor and elder is reserved for men, as you can see in chapter 3. And again, I know this is super controversial and debatable, but remember Jesus' prayer for us to be united Let's stay humble, let's be willing to be wrong, keep the main thing the main thing, and that's Jesus. This would qualify as a non-essential belief. God's not gonna stand in front of the gates to heaven when we die and make sure we had the right belief about church structure and male leadership before he lets us in. I would encourage you to dive deep in these issues in your real life groups. I can't, I can't cover it all. It's not enough to hear this surface explanation for a few minutes and call it good. Ask more questions in small groups. Talk to me about it. I'd love to hear your thoughts and I could share more. Let's all sharpen each other as we read God's word together. And I want to move on to be sure there's time to talk about the elders, okay? As we read in chapter 3, Paul lays out the qualifications for elders. Or it could be translated bishops or overseers. Same, Same thing. Overall, it's mostly a list of what all Christians should be defined by but the elders should be the ones who have proven it by their lives, that they've done it well. And I'm, we are so blessed to be a part of a church that takes this seriously. Did you know that our elders are already praying and seeking out who the next elders are gonna be? The vetting process for elders is, is around six months long here. We won't see the candidates for a while, and, and then in the, when the new year comes is when we vote on them, but the process is already underway. They interview men and literally test them against this list and ask them the hard questions. They don't take it lightly. And our elders truly do such a great job. Paul says, if anyone aspires to be an elder, it's a noble task. And so often we hear our elders say that they never pursued it or they never thought they were worthy of it. But regardless, they do so well at it that who wouldn't want to aspire to be one? If you ever need an example of what a godly, servant-hearted, devoted follower of Jesus is, just look at one of our elders and their wives. I'd like to formally recognize them in this time. Uh, You can find their pictures and their bios on our website, but uh, take a look at them now. If you're an elder, would you and and your wife please stand up uh, during this time? They are just amazing men and women of God. Yeah, Scott, you and Sarah, too. Hey, if you've been a previous elder, if you have served as as an elder previously, would you also please stand? Um, I know there's a few of them in here, too. Thank you all so much. I just want to say thank you. I know it's not easy. I know you're giving so much of your time. You're giving so much of your emotional energy to all the problems and demands of this church body. You sacrifice in ways that we could never truly understand. I pray God would bless you for it. If you aspire to be an elder, it's truly a noble task, Paul says. I'll quickly address one more question before we wrap up today. Uh, the second part of chapter 3, it's all about deacons. All right, well, we've got elders, and that's great, uh, but we don't have deacons at HCF. Michael, why not? I'm glad you asked. I had the same question. <laughs> um, did you know that deacon is literally the Greek word used? It's diakonos. Dia, like we saw earlier, is, is through, and then kanos means dust. It literally says a through dust person or a servant, someone willing to get dirty to serve. So how many of you serve here in church? I pray we can all lift our hands, right? Um, talk to me or one of the pastors about it if, if you don't. We, there are so many ways to get plugged in and serve and use your gifts and your passions. But if, if you serve... Congratulations, you're a deacon at HCF. Um, you're a servant. It doesn't necessarily have to be an official office or, or title like some denominations do, and, and that's fine. But we would consider all of our team members, all of our servants, to be deacons. Uh, deacons makes it sound so official, but the literal word servant makes it clear who it's talking about. If you're a Christian, you should be serving. We should all be deacons. We should all try to live out this list here for deacons. As we wrap up... Um, Peter, did you know he wrote in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, he, Peter himself said, there are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand. <laughs> Shocker, right? <laughs> I know he was talking about at least this passage here. I know this was a lot. I know there's a lot of tough things in here, but it's worth diving into. Yes. I encourage you to ask your questions in real life group. Um, get plugged into a real life group if you're not already. Uh, feel free to join me and mine. Uh, we, we meet right after church. I'd love to share with you about it. But let's all remember our common faith in Jesus as we wrestle through these things. At the end of the day, let's unite under Jesus. And remember, it's all for him. Because yeah. what we do as the family of God reveals his truth to the world. And so it matters. Thank you for listening. For more sermons and full-service replays, visit our media page on hcfburnett.org and follow us on social media. God bless and have a great week.